0: There are 12 notes in the western chromatic scale. They go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, those seven note names, and there are sharps and flats of each of them. Except there isn't a B sharp and there isn't an E sharp. B sharp is just C and E sharp is just F. I guess they decided it couldn't be too simple or everyone would understand it. And you know, we can't have that. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about music in the key of A and music in the key of B, music in the key of G-flat, and music in the key of E-sharp. I've got a bunch of your questions to get through, and I'm excited to dig in. So pour yourself a cool beverage or a warm beverage, if that's what you prefer. Turn up the volume and enjoy the show. I don't think I've actually ever played a tune in the key of E sharp. That would just be a pretty crazy key signature to write. It would have so many sharps, you wouldn't be able to fit notes on the page. Though I've definitely been playing tunes. It's usually like show tunes and uh, pit orchestra stuff, where there will be a bunch of key changes throughout the song while the singer is kind of moving through a bunch of different key changes. And eventually it'll wind up in some key that's got B sharps or E sharps written into it, or maybe a C flat um, written into the into the music. And you really have got to kind of reprogram your brain to, uh, to see a B and think, Okay, that's going to be a B sharp. we have got to read that as a C. Welcome to the show, everybody. We're doing another listener question episode this time around, and I've got a bunch of great questions to get to, some of which I wasn't able to get to in the last one, some of which are new. As always, just as a reminder, you can send me any questions or feedback, recommendations, whatever you want, um, to StrongSongsPodcast at gmail.com, and you can also tweet them at me at Kirk K-I-R-K Hamilton on Twitter. Before we get started, thanks to everybody who enjoyed the most recent episode, which is a bonus interview with my former high school band director. I know that's not exactly the you know, well-known songwriter or pop star that, that you usually would have as a guest on a show like this, but I thought that would be a cool first guest for a bonus episode, and it was really special to me to get to talk with Janice. So thanks to everybody who gave that episode a shot and listened to it, and especially thanks to everyone who said that they enjoyed it. I'm nearing the threshold to do my next bonus episode, which will be a term a terminology explainer. Um, once we get to a few more patrons on Patreon, I will make that episode it'll I'll just sort of go over a bunch of instrumental terms and musical terms and a lot of lingo that that I use on this show and then it'll break it down you know like a glossary that you can listen to so if you would like to help make that happen head over to patreon.com/strongsongs and uh, and sign up to become a patron thanks everybody who has done so you're making it possible for me to make this show as good as it can possibly be all right let's get into some questions let's do this thing first question comes from John who writes can you weigh in on who really won the fiddle duel in The Devil Went Down to Georgia by the Charlie Daniels band? I've always liked what the devil played over what Johnny plays. It's certainly more inventive, whereas Johnny is playing bluegrass favorites. Tough stuff, but unremarkable. Okay, so John is referring to, of course, The Devil Went Down to Georgia by the Charlie Daniels band. This was like their big hit, kind of a gimmicky and fun song that I really liked the first time I heard it as a kid. And I think this is a really fun question. So in this song, Johnny does a deal with the devil to have a, to have a fiddle duel and the reward will be be this gold fiddle of course the devil is thinking he can beat johnny and he will get johnny's soul this is all a little bit like robert johnson at the crossroads you know that movie with ralph macchio if you haven't seen it and also the actual legend involving robert johnson we don't need to get into it anyways i like this question because it is true that there is a significant stylistic difference between the devil's fiddle solo well really the devil and the demon band's fiddle uh, extravaganza and what johnny winds up playing so let's listen to the two and then make a decision first here's what the devil plays Okay, so that's, a, that's kind of a lot, that solo. Um, so the description going into that is that a demon band appears beside the devil, and they play together, and that's why you're hearing a whole bunch of different fiddles playing. And yeah, it's, it's basically like a big, long, shredding glissando going up chromatically, and then it kind of overshoots the mark, and then they just all come down in different ways, sort of playing a lot of chromaticism, so it just sounds super jumbled and, and kind of wild. It's the kind of thing that I would call successfully avant-garde if there were a little bit more to it, but unfortunately I kind of feel like the devil and the devil band, they just they do just sort of play a bunch of chromatic nonsense. Like there isn't there isn't really a there there with this solo, despite the fact that it is very arresting and intense. It just it doesn't begin with any kind of a strong, coherent idea. It's just chaos. And you know, that's kind of fitting, I guess, for the devil, but it's not really like a very good solo, really. It sounds sort of like the end to a really good solo. If there had been another 16 bars with a few more concrete ideas, then it could have really gone off and, you know, broken out of, you know, the restraints of the song in this way that would have been exciting. But to just start and end kind of so chaotically, it sort of undercuts the solo, in my opinion. Okay, so let's listen to what Johnny plays. When
1: the devil finished, Johnny said, well, you're pretty good, old son.
0: I mean, like, is he really? Or is Johnny just being nice? Uh, Anyway.
1: But sit down in that chair right there and let me show you how it's done. Fire on the mountain, run, boys, run The devil's in the house of the rising sun Chicken in the bread pan, picking out dough Granny, let your dog back, no child knows
0: Okay, so you know, pretty good solo. Nice ending there. Is it the greatest fiddle solo I've ever heard? No. Is it enough to beat what the devil played? I guess, depending on who's judging it. Do I see what John is saying about the devil solo being more interesting because Johnny's is kind of just a bunch of bluegrass cliches sort of thrown together? Yes, absolutely. Do I have some questions about the logistics of this musical challenge and the judging and the criteria? I do, and yet would answering those questions make this very goofy and fun song maybe a little bit less goofy and fun? Probably yes. So my answer to your question, John, is unfortunately, I do think the devil kind of lost that one. The devil is playing something kind of interesting. He's cheating, I guess, by having a band, but I guess that's the devil for you. But it's not, there's kind of no there there. There isn't like a kind of a coherent idea that he then can introduce chaos to. And I feel like chaos needs a little bit of order to work. And hey, maybe that is the subtle musical point of this song. You know, this makes me think of something. There's this classic jazz album that I love called Sunny Side Up. It's under Dizzy Gillespie's name, but it's featuring Dizzy Gillespie on trumpet and Sunny Stitt and Sonny Rollins both playing tenor. So it's Sonny, S-O-N-N-Y, side up. This being the joke that Sonny Stitt and Sonny Rollins are both, you know, heavyweights of saxophone and they were both on this album. There's a tune on the album, famous recording, called The Eternal Triangle that is sort of a tenor battle, a tenor saxophone battle between Sonny Stitt and Sonny Rollins. The first time I heard it, I thought, oh man, like Sonny Stitt totally won that one because Sonny Rollins is playing kind of like weirder lines, just like more oddball ideas and kind of cool rhythmic stuff. Sonny Stitt, who is this kind of uh, Charlie Parker-influenced, just super fluid, really, really technically proficient player, was just playing these really burning bebop lines. Now that I'm a lot older and have you know, transcribed the whole thing and like learned it a bunch of times, I definitely think that Sonny Rollins' solo is actually way better. So I guess in this uh, comparison, Sonny Rollins is the devil and Sonny Stitt is Johnny. And Sonny Rollins, unlike the devil in The Devil Went Down to Georgia, has a there there to his ideas, and his ideas are much more interesting than the technically fluid and proficient but maybe less interesting Sonny Stitt. That's a cool one to check out, though. Sonny Side Up, very fun record. Also has Dizzy Gillespie singing on the sunny side of the street. Uh, So that's a good one to listen to. Okay, speaking of saxophone solos, this next one is something a few people um, called to my attention on social media, and a couple people actually wrote in about as well. This is a tweet by someone who goes by Gal Grayson, who tweeted this video of a record player, you know how sometimes people will like take a video of their record player playing a song, and just described it as, this is the worst solo I've ever heard on any instrument. And um, the solo is a tenor saxophone solo by a band called The Five Satins, from a tune called The Jones Girl, that is actually not the sax solo that's on the main, uh, version of the single, it's uh, I, I guess from some sort of an alternate cut or like a promo cut or something, and um, regardless of you know the reason that it was not on the main uh, the main recording, if you hear the solo, you will understand maybe why they didn't go with it. Uh, so here's the solo in question. You know, uh, it, it seems safe to guess that things didn't uh, things didn't go as planned uh, during that saxophone solo. All right, so just to break that solo down a little bit, this is a twelve bar blues. If you recall from past episodes, we've talked about the song form of a blues. This is a very very common song form. This is twelve bars long. Uh, we're in the key of D here, and the soloist does something that's actually you know pretty a pretty common move. Is he just starts playing the one? He starts playing the root, which in this case is a D. He's playing tenor saxophones. So that's an E for him. Um, but you know, generally speaking. Game. It's a D, he's playing the one. You
1: know,
0: this is a common thing to do in a solo. It's not a bad idea if you can do it confidently and with good rhythm. You can kind of make a one-note solo in a blues, like a drop blues, kinda of like this. You can make that work pretty well. And actually the solos does make it work pretty well. They start out okay. thing is it's a two chorus solo which is actually kind of long for this kind of a track and by the time the second chorus starts the single note has just gotten a little bit weird and also the way that the person is playing it the way the soloist is like articulating and placing the note rhythmically just becomes increasingly incoherent and starts to feel kind of frantic in a way that is i have to say deeply funny There's something amazing about it, right? There is something I really admire about this solo. It almost feels like some sort of a commentary or like a, you know, like a deadpan joke that you would see in some weird skit on late night TV. Uh, I don't think that that's really what was going on, though it is worth keeping in mind that in the more common version of this recording, you know, the version that's on streaming services, etc., cetera, uh, the solo is much better. You know, it's, uh, there are more than one note. It doesn't totally disintegrate in the second chorus in quite the same way. Though all the same, even listening to that second, you know, final version, it sounds to me just... like it's someone who doesn't really play saxophone. You know, we're in kind of, since we're in E, it's kind of playing E minor notes. Those are the easiest notes to finger on the saxophone. It seems like someone kind of just picked up the horn and was faking it. And that's fine and actually makes me enjoy the fact that they just were tried this one note solo thing to see what would happen and uh, then wound up not sticking with it. So while I don't generally enjoy bagging on other musicians, I did think this solo was funny. And since so many people were talking about it, I figured it would be worth taking a slightly closer look on the show. All right, our next question comes from Aaron, who writes What is the optimal BPM beats per minute to dine by? Or do restaurants play faster music on purpose to get more customers in and out? Uh, This is an interesting question that I have thought about some, but I don't, you know, I haven't done a ton of research on. There have been studies about the effects of the music played in the background at a restaurant, both the volume and the tempo, you know, the speed of the music and what kind of an effect that has. Um, I'll link to a few things that I found. These are just, I think a lot of these are sort of one off studies, so I'm skeptical to put put too much weight onto any of, you know, any single study. But it sounds like one study found that when you play slower music during the day, people are more likely to order drinks and dessert and they're they're less likely to feel rushed, which can actually be good for a restaurant. And then also then uh, there's another study that found that if you play faster music, people will move in and out a little bit faster. So that can make a difference. Also volume, apparently if you play louder music, people will order more drinks, which I guess doesn't surprise me, but I hate when the music is really loud at restaurants. I actually think that sound like audio, you know, management at a restaurant is such an important thing that a lot of people don't put a lot of thought into. And my thinking in general is that quieter music is just better because I have a better experience at the restaurant and I'm more likely to come back. So, you know, whether or not the tempo or the volume is manipulating me in some subconscious way, in a conscious way, I just appreciate it when the music is is not super frantic and not super loud. I will say this makes me think of a slightly different tempo question, which is what is the ideal tempo to walk down the street? I've been listening to some new music lately and I always find when a song comes on that's right around the right tempo for a good walk down the street, I like start walking in time to the music and depending on the tempo, you know, I'm more I'm more apt to do that or not do that. And I think that my theory here is that the BG's Stand Alive is the perfect tempo for walking down the street. Now, staying alive is recorded at 103 beats per minute, and I think you know it's partly just that iconic shot of um, John Travolta walking down the street in the movie in Saturday Night Fever, um, you know, set to this song that makes it seem so perfect. But really, this tempo, when this song comes on, if you're walking anywhere and this comes on your headphones, it's basically impossible not to walk in time to the music. Our next question comes from KB, who writes, I've been re-listening to my favorite album of 2018, The Future and the Past by Natalie Prass. And I have a question about the song Hot for the Mountain. It sounds wrong, dissonant, spooky, and creepy. What techniques is Natalie using to get that disconcerting effect? First of all, I had not listened to this album by Natalie Prass, and it is really good. She's really good. This album is called The Future and the Past, and I highly recommend checking it out. Man, she's a good guitar player, really creative singer, really well-produced, great band on this just killer albums so um i've really been enjoying listening to this actually this is one of the albums that i've been walking around um, listening to and finding myself walking in time to it okay so the song in question is hot for the mountain let's listen to the beginning of that and we can get into what kb is asking about So this is a super cool tune pretty different vibe than a lot of the stuff on the record um, this is the she's doing a couple of things to get that kind of dark and you know kind of pulsing sinister sound for starters it's just the groove you know the groove is just kind of a thump and a pop the pop is that kind of thwack um it sounds like two sticks or a stick doing a double rim knock um, on the snare rim um but what's really going on that makes it kind of sound dark is the harmony so this is in c and there's kind of just a big c power chord it's nothing but c and then g and then c which is the root and the fifth and it sounds like this so then you've got that kind of you know really sparse groove going and then the only thing laying down the groove is there's a c in the bass and the piano is just playing this big fat open fifth So with just that root and fifth, there's kind of a lot of room for the melody to do whatever it wants. And so the notes that she chooses for the melody are very carefully chosen and kind of add different levels of tension. They're kind of like acupuncture points. There's this big open, you know, fifth chord. And then she starts her melodies really centered around the ninth, which is just kind of a little bit of an unexpected note and adds a kind of an unsettled feeling. And then after that, she goes to the tritone. So listen to the melody First she comes in on a D Which is the ninth And just sounds kind of unresolved No So that ninth is just this kind of floating, unresolved, a little bit uncomfortable-sounding place to put a melody. It's a really cool place to put a melody. And then the next big note she jumps to, like I said, is the tritone. If you remember from when we talked about the Simpsons theme, among other things, I think we've talked about the tritone several times on this show. But that's a very dissonant interval. That's a flat five or a sharp four. It was called the devil's interval for a while because it's so kind of, I don't know, evil? Is the tritone evil? Maybe. Anyway, when she sings it, it sounds like this. Oh man. So, first of all, yeah, that you can hear it right there. I mean, it's just kind of unsettling sounding, right? She really just leaves it just this very stark tritone just sitting up there at a very dissonant interval. It's also just super cool. I think that's a really, really cool melody and a cool trick. Um, the rest of the song has a bunch of other just kind of weird, you know, uh, like uncanny sounding melodies. And it's designed to have this kind of a creeping, you know, unsettling vibe. And I think it's just really effective. It's a super cool song. There's a cool song from a really cool album. That's Natalie Prass from The Future and the Past. Definitely worth checking out. Hill writes, my wife is a musician, and so now I have lots of musician friends, and I hear them make observations about music they like or don't like by calling it overproduced, or very produced, or well-produced. What does noting that a song is produced in one way or another mean? Follow-up, what does a song producer do? Okay, let's tackle that follow-up first. That's a big question because a song producer can be a lot of different things. It means different things in different contexts. Generally speaking, what I think of as a producer's role is they're kind of the person who has their fingers on everything, and hears everything and is in charge of the grand vision for the album or for the track if we're talking about a single song Um, it's you know they kind of think okay we're going to have the song you know follow this certain trajectory we're going to do the arrangement this way we're going to mix it this way you know we'll we'll use this reverb sound to get this kind of distant thing for the verses and then the second chorus will come in and we're going to bring in the strings a lot of times the producer can also just be responsible for setting up the recording sessions and kind of managing it that the person who sits in the booth while the artist is recording and offers ears you know it's really hard to record a recording session with just an engineer at the board. It's really nice to have someone sitting there in the room with the engineer saying, Oh, that take was okay, but why don't you try this? Why don't you try that? You know, they can kind of direct things from behind the board while they're not in the actual session playing. So I would say generally speaking, a producer is not someone like in the band out playing, though of course sometimes producers do that. You know, in hip hop, the producer can be the person who creates the beats and then brings in a rapper to rap over something. And a lot of times producers will also be, you know, featured on an album. Dr. Dre is a very very famous hip-hop producer. He's also a rapper. He makes beats. He just kind of does all of it. And he oversees the album and just makes everything happen. So basically when it comes to production, you know, that can mean a lot of different things. You can say, wow, that's a really well-produced album. And that could mean you could be talking about an album that was just a band in the studio with microphones on everybody recorded, but it's very well-recorded and very it sounds really beautiful and you can just tell everything was sort of engineered really well with a clear vision for the sound. Um, Nickel Creek's fairly recent album, A Dotted Line, is one that I think of as as just instruments in a room, but it's re- it's produced and recorded really well. This was produced by Eric Valentine, and I think it just sounds incredibly good. And they've placed the instruments and done all the arrangements and mic'd everything so that it has a distinct sound, even though it's not really flashy.
1: Gave up and lost it, so now you're looking for a little well, look at my face, I got make a destination.
0: And that can be a well-produced album. I mean, it's a good engineer, and the producer had a nice vision for how it was going to sound, and they made it sound distinct. Now, don't think that I'm saying that good production means it's super clearly recorded, you know, or it has some pristine quality to it. That's one kind of good production. It can be good. It can also be overly clean. Um, Jack White, actually, I think is a really good producer, and he produced, I think, all of the White Stripes albums, and each of those albums has a super distinct sound, but it's not clean. He used all kinds of, like, you know, old retro gear and, and got a really roomy sound, there's a kind of a thickness to the way everything is recorded, but it sounds really good and it sounds coherent, you know it has a distinct identity, and that's a big part of production, you know, a producer can give a song or a collection of songs an identity I'm thinking about my dog. It could be a really elaborate thing with tons of multi-track vocals and all kinds of arrangements and you know overdubs and multiples of every instrument and the string section and a horn section and all these creative wild things going on and like electronic synths coming in halfway through. Like you could have a really like a, you know complicated album that could also be very well produced because the producer has done a good job of threading everything together. Um, actually, "The Future in the Past" by Natalie Prass is a good example of a very produced album. This album was produced by Matthew White and um, it's very produced. There's a lot. Going- Going on, but it's beautiful. I actually think of albums like this kind of like ear candy, you know, like in movies and in video games, there's eye candy, things that are just fun to look at because they're very shiny. This album is very ear candy ish to me just because everything is so perfectly placed and there's so much going on, but it's all very intricate and shiny and beautiful sounding and really well recorded and fun to listen to. So that brings us to Hill's last thing, which is what does it mean when something is overproduced? We've got when something is well-produced, that can mean a lot of different things, but generally it means, you know, clean, easy to hear everything, really shiny, really nice sounding, really well put together and considered feeling. What is overproduced? To me, the best way I can describe the sound of an overproduced record, it's when there's so much going on and everything has been so buffered out and shined up, either with autotune or just with a lot of chorus and doubling and you know compression to make everything louder, that it almost feels like there's no breathing room at all. And the music just almost doesn't even exist. Like It's pressed so far up against the limits of what it can be that there's no room for anything human in there. And so it just doesn't sound fully real. It's almost like the people making it weren't confident enough in the performances and instead just like maxed everything out and kind of bulked it all up so that it doesn't actually totally sound real and that's kind of overproduced you know they've overdone it. So this is a subjective thing I'm not going to pick a specific example of an overproduced tune here only because whatever example I picked would be your favorite band and then you'd hate me and you'd never listen to my podcast again. But um, part of the thing with overproduction for me anyways is that sometimes just listening to the one song is fine but when you listen to an album that's been like just really hyped up and everything is really jacked up and perfect sounding and shiny, it can get a little bit exhausting. And that, to me, is the kind of the sign of something that's been overproduced is there's just so much going on. They clearly had so much time in such a nice studio and access to so many different things that they just threw a whole bunch of stuff in there and eventually it just kind of becomes uh, overwhelming. Think of it like the Star Wars prequels. The Star Wars prequels are a good example. Overproduced music sounds like the Star Wars prequels were to watch.
1: Now this is part-
0: OK, this next question comes from Bob, who asks, what exactly are we hearing in the opening bars of It's All Over Now by The Rolling Stones that makes the guitars sound so unusual, but so cool? And then Bob also asks, similar question for the opening bars of For the Love of Money by The OJs. How do they make the guitars sound so big and far away and then really up close and near? It sounds awesome. So these two questions are actually sort of all related to the same thing. So let's listen to both of the things that Bob is asking about. First off, here are the opening bars of It's All Over Now by The Rolling Stones.
1: Well, baby used to stay out all night long.
0: Pretty cool sounding. Okay, so let's listen to Bob's second example, which is the opening bars of "For the Love of Money" by the OJs. Okay, so my sense is that Bob maybe had a sense that these two things were sort of similar, and that's because they're using the same effect to get that sound, and that effect, of course, is reverb. Reverb, of course, is short for reverberance, and it's what people—that's a word people use to describe the sound of um, an instrument or a voice or really anything bouncing around inside of a space. So, you know, when you yell out into a canyon, that is really big reverb. And when you kind of say something in a really small room that doesn't have anything on the walls, and you can still kind of hear that bounciness, that's a smaller room reverb. So reverb is used a lot in recordings in a lot of ways, and not all of them are just the big, unsubtle, you know, boomy way that I'm using with this reverb plugin that I'm turning on that's making it sound like i'm speaking in this huge amphitheater or something you know people use it very subtly and a lot of what reverb does is it communicates distance So in the Rolling Stones recording in particular, this this single was put out in 1964. That just sounds like they placed the mic farther away from the guitar amplifier and let the room ring out so you can hear the room. If you put a mic really close to something, you don't get a lot of reverb. You get just, you know, the pure signal of the thing. So a lot of people will mic guitar amplifiers by putting the mic right up on it. So you don't get any reverb except for maybe if the amp itself has like reverb effect built into it. (laughs) But you can also mic a guitar from farther away and you get a much bigger, more reverberant sound that sounds more distant. A lot of what people will do is they'll do both. They'll mic, the, they'll close mic the, uh, the amp and then also mic the room and kind of mix the two together to get a little bit more space if you want it or a little bit more punchiness if you wanna be up close. That's if you have um, the microphones and the space to spare. So there are two basic ways of getting reverb, and what I've talked about so far is practical reverb, I guess what I'll call it, which is the actual reverb of the room, you know? I moved the mic farther away from my guitar amp, and I got a different sound. Uh, I could do that same thing with the way that I record this podcast. So if I stand farther away from the microphone that I record with, my room is pretty deadened that I record in, but you can hear it sounds super different. You can hear the room, right? You can hear it kind of bouncing around as I talk and it's a very different sound than how I usually talk which is right up close to the broadcast mic that I use to record this podcast it's not just mic placement too um, I'm not sure what this Rolling Stones thing is but Phil Spector, a really famous record producer, kind of pioneered this the idea of piping the music from the recording room down into a separate big chamber, so you would put separate mics down there and that would kind of be the reverb room and then you would fade that in with the mic that's actually on the amplifier that could be what they did here, um, I'm I'm really not sure, but it sounds kind of like they're an gymnasium or something, which I don't think that's where they would record. So the other type of reverb is using a plugin or some sort of a reverb module to simulate the reverb, which is how a lot of reverb is done, especially these days in album and record production. Um, you can get plugins; they're called in a, you know any audio, digital audio workstation that simulate reverb. And some really expensive ones, some really good ones. You can use an outboard, you know, kind of rack unit that can be very, very expensive and can do reverb for you, and that simulates the reverb. So when I put reverb on my voice, I'm using a plugin to do that. And the second example the OJs for the Love of Money, I think they're using some sort of a reverb plug-in as well. It puts reverb on the bass at the very beginning, which gives it that kind of reverberant sound, and then the second time the bass plays that, you know, really iconic opening lick, the reverb goes away. So you hear it with the reverb sounding kind of farther away, and then immediately afterward you hear it with no reverb, and it sounds right up in your face. Okay, so let's listen to that. Here's the first phrase. This one has Reverb <laughs> Okay, now listen to the same phrase, which happens immediately afterward with the reverb cut out. So when Bob says it makes it sound big and massive and far away and then really up close and near, that's all they're doing is they add a bunch of reverb to that first phrase and then they cut it away. So listen to the two back to back and just that the beginning of the song and pay attention for when the reverb is in and when the reverb is out.
1: Cool song that i will
0: unfortunately always associate with the apprentice but still a good song i love that phase flange effect on those drums on the cymbals. it gives it that cool kind of moving feeling a uh, very classic sound so anyways bob i hope that's helpful reverb is like i said a really like useful thing that goes way, way beyond just adding big ambience to things or making things sound more epic. You can do a lot of creative stuff with reverb. Um, I'm not even that great with it, but uh, speaking of production, this is something that good producers can can use really well. A good producer definitely knows what they're doing when it comes to reverb. Our next question comes from Darren, who asks, could you explain the counting for the bridge parts in Black Dog by Led Zeppelin in a QA? and a It feels like there are extra beats, but it may just be Jimmy Page being playful. Okay, this is a fun question. Um, I have a lot lot. lot of thoughts on this. I actually used to play this in a band I was in in San Francisco, so I know this song pretty well. Let's listen to the section in question. This is the bridge section of Black Dog that definitely does do some creative things with the counting.
1: All right, here we
0: go. Okay, so this is one of those things that feels harder to count than it is, in part because the band just sort of plays it loose. It's not actually really that hard, and the main thing you need to do is just listen to John Bonham's drumming. He holds a steady beat, and this doesn't actually add any weird time signatures, it's just that the guitar riff plays kind of a different time signature stretched out over the existing time signature that ultimately evens out to the same number of beats. So there's kind of the as-written version of this, and there's the way that they perform it. Um, If I were writing this out and the way I always counted it in my head, um, it kind of works like this. So you get the idea. What's going on here basically is there's a riff that has nine sixteenth notes in it. You know, there's a couple eighth notes in there. Those are two sixteenth notes. Comes out to nine. It's an odd number of sixteenth notes. And if you put those back to back pretty quickly, they start displacing on the beat so that each time you play the riff, you know, different parts of the riff arrive at different parts in the beat because the beat is evenly divided by fours, but you're playing an odd number of notes. But basically you get. And you're playing the same riff over and over again, but the two things are kind of moving on different pulses. Let's count it. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one. So like I said, if you focus on John Bonham's drumming, you know his pop, his snare drum hit in there is just thump pop. I mean, he's laying it down on that section, giving this really, really steady backbeat, almost as though he's trying to cut through to really give everybody in the band something to latch onto, because the bass and the guitar, Jimmy Page's guitar, he gets a little bit ahead of the beat. It's just a little bit loose. And this isn't like a criticism exactly. You know, Lord knows Led Zeppelin does not need to be an uber-precise band. That's not why they rock. Um, but it's a little bit loose, and so if you focus on the guitar riff, you can start to feel a little bit woozy, you know, almost seasick or something, because they're the beat is just stretching a little bit, and because they're doing this unusual counting to begin with on the riff, it can be a little bit confusing. Now, like I said, the way that I've been counting it is just the way that I count it and the way that I feel it. I'm not saying that that's right exactly, because they do that section again. They actually play it a second time, and the second time they do it, the same thing happens. Jimmy Page is sort of just out front of the beat, playing in his own slightly different like parallel rhythmic universe from John Bonham. And then he circles back when they come back in together on that groove. So it could be that Jimmy Page is doing this on purpose and that he feels it that way and kind of likes that feeling of like tearing apart a little bit there and then bringing it back together. Um, if I were writing it out, that'd be one thing. But then again, you know, you feel music. You don't necessarily have to write it out. Like, I bet that Led Zeppelin didn't have charts of this when they were in the studio. Our next question comes from Jeff, who writes, please do more rhythmic fake-out intros like you've done on previous listener question episodes. Uh, my favorite of all time is Gumboots on Paul Simon's Graceland, even after... after... After 1,000 listens, I can never find the downbeat until the vocals start, although I love the mild disorientation it causes. Uh, Sure, I have a couple of these a few people have written in since I started talking about fake-out intros. You know, this is intros that play one rhythm and you think you know where the downbeat is, but then the drums come in and the downbeat is somewhere else. Surprise! Which is a really common trick and a very fun one. Uh, Let's start by listening to Jeff's example. I love this song. I love this album. This is Gumboots off of Paul Simon's Graceland. All right, like I said, I love this song, love this intro. Um, it, you know, they get into the beat pretty quickly, so this intro isn't, you know, they don't spend a long time faking you out or getting you used to one groove before going into another one, but it is kind of hard to count. I think the key for this one is actually just to understand the groove and kind of get it in your head, because once you do, you'll be able to find the downbeat really quickly um, before the actual downbeat comes in. Uh, this starts on the and of two, on the upbeat of two, but I think that's less important than just hearing how the groove works. So this is like a really clearly kind of subdivided thing like this, the temp- just like one, two, three, four, kind of right there. I'm just drumming on my chest. Forgive my uh, drummed voice here. So if you just hear the the groove, um, the bass line has just this kind of cool, it's like... That's kind of the bass line. So then if you count that guitar part, it's like... Pum, pum pa pum 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 ta pum 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 So for this one, I'd say that's the key. Once you get that kind of guitar part in your head, um, you can hear it from the very beginning. The minute you hear it, you know what he's doing and where the beat is. And that's really the key for a lot of these kinds of fake-out intros, is once you just get the groove in your head, you kind of innately know where one is. So then when you hear you know, a guitar part like this one that comes in on the upbeat of two, you already just kind of know, okay, yeah, I can find the groove immediately. Um, man, this song has so much cool stuff going on in it. I'm like extremely scratching the surface, just sort of faking it here, trying to sing and drum on my chest. But Like I said, I could do a whole episode on this song. I could do a whole episode on any song on this album. I could do like a series of episodes about this album. I think that might actually be sort of fun. Anyways, man, Graceland, it's a really good album. Man. So a lot of people have sent in some other fake-out intros. Here's one that I want to play for you that I think won't fake a lot of you out, and I think it kind of proves the thing that I'm saying earlier, is that once you're familiar with the groove, you no longer are faked out. And that is The Kinks You Really Got Me, which is one of the most famous sort of fake-out intros, to the point where it's so ubiquitous that I don't think anyone is faked out by it anymore, or even thinks of it as a fake-out intro. But uh, just listen to it and see if you already know where the downbeat is. (laughs) So I think that everybody hears that just because that riff is so ubiquitous throughout the song, boo da 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 and they hear that pickup, you know, the pickup note is on an upbeat, and they hear that for what it is. Instead of hearing it as na na which is what—if you'd never heard this song before, you might gravitate toward it because usually a fake-out intro relies on, you know, assuming that you'll hear the first note as being the downbeat. And if that were the case, the groove would be like a one, two, three, four, ba na na na. You know, and that is definitely not how this tune sounds. But because everybody knows the groove, I think that when you hear it, you know where the drums are going to come in. Thanks. Another super good band. All right. Next question comes from Courtney, who writes, One question I have is, what is it about Raffi? We have two small children, ages three and five, and our car rides have gone from favorite adult tunes to kids' songs. And let me tell you, not all kids' songs are created equal. Some are just obnoxious enough to throw right out the window, and others are actually pleasant to listen to. One of the artists we keep going back to is Raffi. My husband and I both grew up listening to his songs, and now our kids have discovered his classic songs as well. Well, Courtney, yeah, I think that Raffi is really, really good, and I'm actually fascinated by children's music. Actually, back back in the day, many, many years ago, I produced a children's album for a singer that I was friends with. She was really great. And it was a really fun project because I'd never worked on children's music before. And the thing I learned more than anything else doing that project, I think that what made it work is just, it was good music. Because I don't actually think that good children's music needs to be, you know, grating or cloying or annoying or overly repetitive in that way that a lot of children's music is. Like, kids certainly like that stuff, but I think you can also just make really good music, and kids will like that too, and I think Rafi is a great example of that. The Rafi song that I always think of, you know, I grew up listening to Rafi too, I think I'm sure a lot of people did, and a lot of people still are it sounds like, which is great. Um, My favorite Rafi song, or one of my favorites, is Baby Beluga, which I went back and listened to after reading Courtney's email, and it's so much better than I even remembered. It's so hip, the arrangement is beautiful, there's all this really wonderful woodwind clarinet playing, it's like a bass clarinet, or maybe a sax, but I think it's a bass clarinet at the bottom there's this really nice lush arrangement His singing is so natural. It's such a pretty song. Listen to some of this.
1: Baby beluga, oh baby beluga, sing your little song, sing for all your friends, we like to hear.
0: I mean, it's no wonder that kids like listening to this stuff, right? I like listening to this stuff. That's some wonderful music. So I think that that's really Rafi's secret. You know, he does a lot of other cool things, too. Um, He has kids come and sing on his tunes, but it's never overwhelming. It doesn't feel like a bunch of kids shouting at you ever. But there are enough kids in the recordings to make kids who are listening to it want to sing along. He does a really good job of writing melodies that are easy to sing along to. He picks uh, lyrics, I think, that are really cool. That's definitely something I like. You know, I knew what a beluga was, what a beluga whale was when I was really little, littler than I, you know, probably would have known what that was otherwise. But his songs always have these cool little words and turns of phrase, so I think that's neat too. But really when it comes down to it, it's just about that broader point that good music and good children's music are not, you know, uh, mutually exclusive. And the best children's musicians are just really good musicians. And Rafi is just a really good songwriter, a really good singer. He's just good. Sing,
1: sing, Ring, 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 banana phone. Ding dong ding donana phone. It grows in bunches.
0: All right, our next question comes from Jasmine, who writes, Some of the Beatles tracks seem to sit between keys. For example, I think of Here Comes the Sun as being in Not Quite A Major. I've heard they would change tape speeds to get the effects they want. Do songs ever sit between the standard keys today? Or does computerized production eliminate those areas between keys? And do you think that anything is lost if that's the case? This is an interesting question. Um, it's something I've thought about a lot. The more I've gotten into older recordings and learning them on the piano, the more I've noticed that, as Jasmine says, there are definitely recordings where, for whatever reason, they're just not quite in the key that they're in. You know, they're in, like she talks about Here Comes the Sun. That's in the key of A, but it's a little bit out of tune when you listen to the recording. It's all in tune with itself, but if you play it on piano along with it, it sounds very strange. Uh, Here, check it out, I'll show you. Here's the beginning of that song. Here comes
1: the sun, Here comes the sun, I say, it's all right.
0: So, you know that sounds beautiful, right? It's the Beatles. It sounds great. They're totally in tune with one another. They're playing wonderfully together. It sounds really good. But check it out. Okay, we're in the key of A. So here are the kind of beginning chords of the tune just played on a piano that is tuned to A440, which is the standard tuning. Um, that just means that the A is vibrating at 440 hertz. You know, if it were 445 hertz, it would be a higher note. And if it were 435, it would be lower. So 440 is just what everyone has agreed upon so that there is a standard. Um, you tune every instrument to that 440 hertz A and then everybody is basically in tune the same. Okay, so here's a piano tuned to A440 playing Here Comes the Sun. Okay, so that sounds fine too. Now check it out. I'm gonna play piano along with that same section of the recording, and it's not gonna sound quite so good.
1: Here comes, the sun, here comes the sun, I say.
0: It just sounds kind of sour, right? And that's because I think I'm right here. The recording, it sounds a little bit sharp to me. It's a few cents sharp. And um, it's tricky sometimes to figure that out because you get into one tuning in your ear listening to the recording and then I listen to the piano and just telling them apart is a little bit tricky, but I'm pretty sure that's what's going on, which I think is because they just sped the tape up a little bit. As um, as Jasmine mentioned, the uh, Beatles did this sometimes. They would, they would mess with tape and they're doing a lot of experimental stuff in the studio and I think that's what happened and I'm guessing it was on purpose to get a slightly different different sound. My guess, though, is that in the studio, they were all in a normal A440 pitch because it would be surprising for them to go into a recording studio and just tune everything up a few cents, you know, just a little bit sharp. You'd have to tune the whole piano. You'd have to tune everything. And that seems unlikely to me. So this sounds a little bit more like something that was done after the fact by speeding the tape up. That does happen. Actually, one of the most famous jazz albums of all time, Kind of Blue, the Miles Davis album, um, was originally recorded or mastered somewhere in the, in the chain of events. The tape was changed that changed speeds a little bit. So it was a little bit out of tune. And so for a long time, it was actually hard to transcribe solos off of that record because they are all just a little bit out of tune and you'd be playing along with it and you'd be in tune, you know, with the piano with A440 and then your recording would just be a little bit off. They eventually corrected it and they released a pitch corrected version of the album. That was a little bit controversial just because the original version was a little bit out of tune. Um, I'm fine with it because it made, it made it easier for jazz students to learn all those great solos. So as to the rest of Jasmine's question, um, I think that this is sort of a really big topic. You know, this is a Western music thing, which by which I guess I mean European music with the 12-tone scale. I think that that, you know, that, approach to harmony the 12 tone approach to harmony has been exported around the world at this point and is very ubiquitous in pop music popular music anything on the radio everybody is pretty much agreed that a 440 is what you tune to and everything is tuned and uses that same harmony however there's still plenty of music in the rest of the world that doesn't adhere to this you know folk music from all kinds of cultures from everywhere that people will just tune regionally because it's just not that important they don't use a pitch pipe you just there's maybe like a drum in town that everybody always tunes to and that's just the basis for tuning and it sounds great. Everyone's in tune with one another, and they make it sound how they want it to sound, and that can make the music sound distinct and different in a way that can be really, really cool. Now, there's a huge convenience factor to having a standardized pitch. You know, I every professional musician is going to learn how to play in tune according to that A440 standard, because there's no time, generally, to go into the studio and screw around with alternate tunings and everybody, you know, tuning off of one relative instrument there. Everyone there wants to come in with us with a frame of reference. It'll just save time. It'll make everything a lot easier and, you know, create a universality that I would say on the balance definitely benefits more than it costs you in terms of, you know, being able to get distinct, unusual tunings or sounds. With that said, a lot I've been on I've been on bandstands where the band is just a little bit sharp. There are orchestras that purposefully play a little bit sharp to just get a brighter sound. You know, you can go a couple cents up, you know, A four forty three or something. And, you know, that can be something that you do deliberately and it doesn't require that much adjustment on the part of most of the instruments, though pianos can be a little bit dicey. But, you know, if you're all playing a little bit sharp, you're still in tune. You're not playing out of tune. And that's the important thing. This Beatles recording sounds beautiful despite being a little bit high because everybody is in tune with one another. And that's what really matters. When one instrument in the band is out of tune, that's the thing that doesn't sound good. You don't want to unilaterally decide, OK, we're in A443 now. Hopefully everyone will follow me. And you're like playing second tenor sax and. In a big band and then you just sound bad and the sax section sounds bad because one guy is playing out of tune. That's basically why the recording sounds good and the piano sounds good but then when you put them together it sounds bad. There is one artist, um, a woman named Hannah Huckleberg, who is this fascinating Norwegian artist and she, uh, I, I've heard at least that she goes into the studio and they play a lot of non-traditional instruments, a lot of percussion on like bicycle spokes and stuff and they tune off of different instruments for each song. So they spend quite a while arranging the song and figuring out how it's going to sound and then they kind of tune things and even I think retune pianos and retune string instruments to make it match with these non-traditional instruments that they're also playing and they get a distinct and really cool sound so it's totally a valid approach to mess with tuning and to reject the A440 standard to do whatever you want you know tune to bicycle spokes if it'll make it sound good and as long as everyone's in tune and playing well it will sound good. Our last question comes from Andres, who writes, I'm an amateur electronic musician here and there, or at least I was, but after five to ten years of being quite productive and having lots of fun, I have hit a complete dead-end wall. I have been stuck. After thinking about it for a while and beating my head against the wall, I have come to the conclusion that my problem is that I need to know more music theory. I realize that I lack the language for what I am trying to do, I don't know how to get the effects that I want to get, and all of my tunes start to sound the same. He says he has some classical training, but has struggled to learn more theory and get more confident around the keyboard and the way that chord progressions and melodies work together. So my advice for you, Andreas, and I think I emailed this to you separately when you wrote me, but this is my advice to anyone listening to this who might be struggling with that same feeling of knowing how to play an instrument but not really knowing how to take you know, interesting new chord progressions and apply new melodies to them. My advice is going to maybe not surprise some of you, but it is to learn more jazz piano. This is something that came up during my conversation with Jana Stockhouse on the recent bonus interview episode. And it's basically that jazz is built around improvisation. And improvisation is that magic word, you know, of spontaneously composing music. Um, and that's really what you're doing when you're improvising. You, don't, you know, jazz improvisation leads to improvisation on just about anything. But lots and lots of musicians improvise. Even before jazz existed, musicians would improvise. And improvising is just having the Sort of capacity to just really quickly look at a chord progression and come up with a melody that works over it. So there are a lot of good resources here. I would definitely suggest finding a private teacher if you can. I always give that advice. Having someone sit down with you and show you things in person is very valuable. Of course, there are tons of videos on YouTube that are very useful. A book that I like is a really, this is a very um, well-known jazz piano book. It's called The Jazz Piano Book. It's by Mark Levine. It's sort of one of the standbys. It's a really dense book. It has a lot of information in it. So don't expect to just buy it and begin working through you know, a new exercise, like a new chapter every single day. It's going to take quite a while because there's a ton of information in it. But especially if you already play piano, it's super useful if you take your time with it and figure it out. One of the things that's so useful for me anyway is that you have so many more ways of getting from point A to point B. And when I'm writing music, that's just the most useful thing to have. Uh, to kind of explain what I'm talking about, jazz, you know, a lot of times you're moving, you're starting on one and you're ending on one in a jazz tune. And and then the thing that makes the tune different is all the different, you know, chords that happen in between the beginning and end point. And you can take, you know, a standard like a 2 five, one chord progression, which is like the most basic kind of chord progression in jazz, and you can do it all these different ways. And the more jazz you learn, the more you learn how to do like tritone substitutions and like add chromaticism and add chord extensions and add all this other interesting stuff on top of those basic, you know, three chords... And the more you do that, the more you kind of learn how to just think, okay, well, here I am on G major. I'm going to have to get to C7. I could go this way or I could go that way I could go that way and you start to kind of just chart all these different paths in your mind the more you study different you know possibilities and different scales and different things you can do the more options you have and then when you're sitting there in the studio and you're writing a song you're thinking okay well the melody wants to go here and then we're going to go here well but what if we tried getting there this way and you just do some completely unexpected thing and you can find that you surprise yourself and add really cool sounds and that's not to mention the benefit that you get from learning how to do it spontaneously if you're really going to learn jazz you know you have to then do it on the spot and then you really need to prepare and you'll learn a whole lot of stuff to have the capacity of sort of generating it out of thin air which makes it much easier than to slow down when you're just sitting at the piano and writing music so yeah that's my advice kind of like my advice for everything my answer is just jazz I guess so my uh, answer here it really is learn jazz so you know jazz it makes everything better That'll do it for this latest Q&A. As always, I would love to hear from you. I'd love your questions for future Q&A episodes, so please send them to me at strongsongspodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet them at me at Kirk, K-I-R-K, Hamilton. I have a newsletter. Did you know that? I haven't mentioned it on a few episodes, but I just sent out the most recent one, so if you would like to sign up, you can sign up a Tiny Letter. There is a link in the show notes, and uh, if you do sign up, you'll get that most recent one as well as one per month from here on out. Thank you so much, as always, everyone who's been spreading the word, leaving reviews. If you like this show and you want to leave a review especially on the apple podcast app that really helps me and thanks as always to my backers on patreon this show wouldn't be happening without you outro soloist is another one you've heard before but it's no less wonderful it is the bay area accordionist rob reich so stick around for rob and i'll be back in two weeks with another strong song